Am I not more to you than ten sons? Our Old Testament lesson begins by introducing a man named Elkanah. And it ends with a question. And in the lesson, we become privy to an awkward relationship moment. Elkanah poses this question to Hannah, his first wife, trying to express his love for her. And the question goes unanswered. Hannah, his first wife, his beloved wife, and his infertile wife. Her infertility seems to be the focus of the story at this point because 1 Samuel is a birth narrative. At least that's what the Bible scholars tell us. Our lesson ends in verse 8 with no baby and Elkanah's unanswered question. Am I not more to you than ten sons? I find his question and Hannah's lack of a response intriguing. The unanswered question shows us that Hannah, Elkanah's wife, is caught up in a cycle of grief and shame. In a world where sons matter and she has none, she is reminded every year at the annual sacrifice by Penina, her sister wife, who for all we know is in the family because she can bear children. Penina takes it upon herself to have her comeuppance every year, every year until finally it gets to a point where Hannah simply is shut down. And Elkanah's question breaks through this cycle at first glance, it seems as though his question is oblivious, as though he doesn't know what this story is about. Unless Elkanah's question is really what the story is about. I wonder if Elkanah's question is an invitation for us to think about this differently. Elkanah lives, doesn't live under the societal pressure that Hannah lives under. He has a second wife, and he has kids, and his house is established, and technically he could put her away if he wanted to, but he doesn't because he loves her. And he gives her a portion that indicates his love for her. As much as Elkanah's gestures of love are important, what Hannah really wants is a baby, a boy, preferably, maybe a fat one. That's what Hannah wants, and Elkanah wants his love to be enough. And in the space between his question and her lack of answer, there is another question that emerges. When exactly? Did Hannah become shaped by what she wasn't, by what she didn't have, so much so that she couldn't respond to Elkanah's love? When did Hannah start believing the cultural diatribe about what it meant to be fully human? When exactly was the moment when her entire existence was defined by what she didn't have? 
When we exegete this text, we talk about the fact that it was important for women to have male children. We talk about these cultural norms and values as if they were pre-existing conditions, as though they were written in stone, when in fact, they are things that are taught and learned. When did Hannah begin to take this in? When did we? When did we surrender to the narrative about what we were supposed to be over and against what we are? To what extent have we cut ourselves off from the ability to receive love because we've been caught up in a cycle that tells us we must produce more and better and faster instead of focusing on who we are or who we love or who loves us? Hannah's obsession with productivity is cultural. Our need to prove ourselves to someone else's standards is learned behavior. And we could, and many of us do, spend days and possibly weeks of our lives listing all of the things that are wrong with us, the mistakes we've made, our shortcomings, all of it. And in all of that, we miss one point the one that comes from Elkanah's question. The question that invites us to remember that we are loved. And I wonder if we could go one step further than remembering that we are loved and maybe lead with that. What would it look like for the love that God has for us to dominate our imagination? When we open our calendars at the beginning of January term and all of a sudden realize we are already behind on the first day <laughs> and look at all the things we have to do and all the things we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to be tracking, I wonder what would happen if we just had one thing on our mind. In the music world, there's something called a one-hit wonder. It's a group that doesn't have a, a catalog of music. Um, they just have one song. And I know I'm going to date myself here, but there are some songs that are beloved that are one-hit wonders, like It's Raining Men, or Tainted Love, or The Lion Sleeps Tonight, or Me and Mrs. Jones, um, Hooked on a Feeling, or Funky Town. You may recognize the song, but you may not know who sang it. And I wonder if that's the point of being a one-hit wonder, that the acceptance and proclamation of the love of God is not about what we achieve, but how we become fertile ground, that we, in receiving and living into and accepting the love of God, become something God can work with, something the Holy Spirit can get right. I wonder if we are invited to become one-hit wonders ourselves. Some years ago, I have a very dear friend named Diane who was in a terrible, terrible car accident. And it was the first time in my life that I had an opportunity to go to the, the trauma burn unit. And when I went in, she was under all kinds of scaffolding and she couldn't talk but she was motioning to a pad and paper. I brought it over to her and she wrote down one word. The word was sing. 
I was telling this story to my daughter, and my daughter stopped right there and said, what did you say? In the midst of all that was going on in that room, I said, there's only one song to sing. Jesus loves me. There's only one song that we need to sing today. There's only one thing we need to get right, to make ourselves open to the love of God and let God make us fertile ground.